Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Yeah. Cool, folks. I got stuff set up so we can kind of get rolling here if you want. But Stacy, thank you for... Uh taking some time out of your day and coming on uh, HPO podcast. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting. I think, uh, you know, we've gotten enough episodes recorded now that our listener base will from time to time say, oh, you got to get so-and-so on the show. And I had a couple of listeners reach out and say to reach out to you and uh, get your expertise on some of the stuff related to endurance, nutrition, and one of the big topics I kind of want to dive into with you, if you don't mind, is kind of the variance between men and women when it comes to sports nutrition and just training methodology in general. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's why my tagline is women are not small men. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I, you know, I listened to a podcast you had done with, I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, it might have been Training Peaks. Um, and then I read a couple articles as well. So, so I, 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 I that was pretty fun. But if you, if you want to start out by just kind of letting our audience know kind of a little bit about you, what your background is, and then we can kind of jump into some stuff. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I am an environmental exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist that specializes in sex differences, which is the big way of saying I look at um, different parameters of heat, altitude, cold, and exercise, and how those stresses differ between men and women. And then when we understand that, then we can apply appropriate sports science methodology to maximize performance in both sexes. Um, I started as a longtime endurance athlete, and so all of the questions I had as an athlete kind of drove my academic career, um, which is kind of how I ended up where I am, like past being a rower for Purdue and then um, racing Ironman, then racing road bikes, doing Xterra, a little bit of ultra running in there, um, and now I work with people who are, are trying to achieve those things because now I have a career and a family, and couple of injuries that just keep me just doing fitness awesome yeah well thanks for the for the intro and you know one of one of the topics i found really interesting and i uh admittedly was i guess maybe a surface level aware that this was likely some sort of a a hurdle maybe you could call it for women athletes to get over but until having you hearing you describe it it didn't really click with me but if you could could you describe with us like what are when when you're when when someone's designing like a training program, whether it's like someone who's just trying to, you know, get into shape versus someone who's trying to PR and say like the 10K or half marathon or something like that, and they're kind of planning how they want to do their schedule. Like, what is some points of interest for for female athletes to pay attention to as you're kind of planning out like when to do some of those peak cornerstone workouts, those workouts that are going to maybe. In, in, take a little more time to recover from versus say a workout that is a little lower on the intensity side of things and is maybe more specified towards active recovery. 
Yeah. So when I look at it that way, um, I try to get people to understand that the, the typical four week plan of like uh, you're building for three weeks and the one week off, all of that has been based on the research that's come out of men where there is no real hormone variation or, or perturbation, so to speak. But when we look at female physiology from a natural standpoint, we have a menstrual cycle and estrogen and progesterone are, are systemic hormones, not just reproductive hormones. They affect so many different systems of the body. And the bottom line really, before we get into all the science behind it is I really recommend women to track their training and their over their period and their mood because over the course of three months, you'll start to see this patterning of days where you feel fantastic versus days you don't feel so great. And a lot of women will be like, oh, well, I didn't sleep well, or um, you know, I, I just didn't hit that workout because I didn't eat well enough, or I'm stressed. But when you start to see this patterning and it's overlaying over your menstrual cycle, then you can find the days of like when you ovulate or the few days before your period when you start to feel flat. And when you understand that, then you can start using your period as an ergogenic aid, knowing that the first couple of weeks where you can hit it hard, that's when you plan your really hard, intense workouts. And some women feel really fantastic around ovulation because estrogen can be an anabolic agent. So they can hit that really top end power and recover well from that. And then the few days before their period starts, that's more technique and, and a little bit lower on the intensity, higher on the rep. So you're working with your physiology to get those gains. And then you always have women who are on a oral contraceptive pill or they don't get their periods and they still track mood over training and they can start to see these perturbations because if they're on an oral contraceptive pill, they'll still have hormone influences. It's just not as apparent as a natural cycle. So that's just step one, regardless if you're trying to set a PR or regardless if you're trying to get fit. Um, there's a lot of women come in and they're trying to get fit and they get these step backs because they're like, oh, I'm, I'm not fit enough. I feel awful. So then they stop. But if we look and see where those hormones are having a play, then we can start to get them to understand as well. Well, actually, it's not your fitness. It's your physiology. Let's work with your physiology instead of against it. And that works across the board from someone who's just trying to start to get fit and those top end athletes. Let me just kind of interject here. Um... You know, because, you know, as I trained as an orthopedic guy, one of the things we would see is, you know, women coming in with stress fractures and stuff like that. But there's this, you know, we, you know, called the female athlete triad where women become amenorrheic and they have extremely low body fat. Do we still see those hormonal perturbations in that situation or has it become blunted? That is to say, as a woman, you know, as we see some of these high level athletes get very, very lean and, and some of that hormonal, I guess, fluctuation may change a little bit is there any is there any variation when we get to that level or is it or is it kind of steady throughout the populations so i'll correct you a little bit on the myth of female athlete triad so the female athlete triad is a small corner of relative energy deficiency in sport and we see a lot of women who are amenorrheic and it all comes down to low energy availability it doesn't have to do with body composition per se it has to do with not enough um, food coming in to match training as well as natural health. So this is where we say your period is an ergogenic aid. If you don't have your period, you're not a healthy athlete. So if they're coming in with stress fractures, the first aspect we look at is if you're amenorrheic and you're coming in with um, bone issues, then we need to drop your training. We need you to get all in. So we need to drop your training. We need to drop the intensity. We need to get your periods back. Because without that hormone perturbation, you're missing out on so many anabolic mechanisms 
and you can't train through being um, amenorrheic. So the common myth is that if you're training hard enough, you'll lose your period. But we know that if you're training hard enough that you keep your period and you actually progress. Because there's lots of research out there to show that amenorrheic um, athletes or anovulatory athletes performance declines, even with increases in training. So when we start getting that message out saying, you know, you're going to go training, you're going to be trying racing and you're amenorrheic, you're hitting your head against the wall. If you want to improve your performance, you have to get your period back because there is no hormonal perturbation. And that's very detrimental, not only on bone health, but musculoskeletal, all of these aspects that create a healthy athlete. Yeah, and so it sounds like a lot of a lot of the women just aren't eating enough, basically, and they're 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 whatever they're either not eating enough or they're training more than they're eating for. So you know, ultimately, it results in just not eating enough. And so we got to get these women eating more foods. I would assume would be the answer to that, or 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 you know, backing off temporarily with the training till they till they can compensate for that. But the end result is a relatively mountainous state. You know, we're we're just we're just not providing our body what we need and utilizing more than we can take in. Yeah, and it's really hard to get uh, female athletes to understand that they need to eat an extra 1,000 calories a day. Like, how do you fit that in? Most people will be like, no way, I'm not eating an extra 1,000 or 1,500 calories a day because I'll work with top pro cyclists, and they're eating 1,100 calories a day trying to race classics and such, which is the prevailing thought of recovery day, you eat almost nothing, and then on hard race days, they don't fuel enough because they're not hungry so when we look at that aspect it's like let's fuel for what you're doing so you can actually put more calories in without consciously feeling like you're eating too much if you actually focus on what you are doing and you fuel for before during and after so the calorie intake comes up supports the body in that breakdown state and can start to attenuate some of those low energy um, availability symptoms even if they are still in a calorie deficit. That's one of the first steps. And then we start progressing from there. That's really interesting. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Sean. I would want to segue out of it if you want to follow okay. up. Yeah, I was just going to say when we're talking about fueling, because you may or may not be aware Zach is an ultra marathon guy. You know, he, he has a generally low carb approach with, with you know, target carbohydrates. I'm kind of a crazy all meat guy and I've done well as an athlete even though I'm a little bit older uh, with high intense exercises what sort of fuel are we talking about for your athletes you find that women have different uh, uh, food needs than, than male athletes assuming they're doing the same type of activities there is there a big difference there there is yes we know that women do not do well on the low carb high fat diet or a ketogenic diet initially they might lose body fat um, <clears throat> But it causes uh, women need more carbohydrate than men just to exist because we have an endocrine function, menstrual cycle, and all these things for reproduction. So if you're looking at too low carbohydrate or um, you know the low carb, high fat aspect, which is really popular in endurance sport, it starts to pull women into that hormone perturbation and menstrual cycle dysfunction, whether or not they're in low energy availability or not. Um, it ties in with the elevation in cortisol, the higher stress, staying in a catabolic state. And we also know that fueling needs across the menstrual cycle change because in a low hormone state, it's really easy to access carbohydrate. But when estrogen starts to rise, you cannot access stored carbohydrate very well. So you have to supply more exogenous carbohydrate to hit pace, keep the heart rate low at a certain workload. Um, 
and your ability to maintain power changes across the menstrual cycle as well. So if you're supplying more exogenous carbohydrate in that high hormone phase, you can actually hit those metrics that you're looking for. So when we're talking about fueling, um, not only are we looking at what kinds of things people are using during their event, but before and after. So there's um, a muscle protein synthesis activity that is not very well talked about, but we know that the leucine circulation in women needs to be elevated more so than what it is in men because it's not just the circulating leucine to synthesize or trigger that motor and muscle protein synthesis activity. It has to come from the brain. So the leucine level within the brain has to be elevated in order to get a feedback mechanism to stimulate that motor. So there's that discrepancy as well where women need more protein post-exercise. Yeah, you know, that you actually brought up a question I was going to ask you about, and that was the, the leucine topic. We've done some deep dives into kind of protein and protein needs for just your average person versus your athlete. And then we've also touched on kind of the role of leucine in the past as well. And I had uh, seen you had written something about that and how, you know, when you look at kind of post-workout recovery, nutrition type protocols, I and mean, you can find a variety of different things out there. Um, but one of the common ones is like this X amount of like carbohydrate protein ratios. Um, but then you, you mentioned it was more to do, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but more to do with, uh, leucine availability for women. And that's not as much of a need for men or not as in high as much of a quantity. What kind of, uh, what kind of a, like approach would you take for, for that? And is there specific workouts where it's more important then to make sure you're getting in some, something with high amounts of leucine in it? So, I mean, if you're looking at an hour workout, it's not that important to really nail down that protein post-exercise because you're going to go in well-fed and then you can eat your normal meal. So this is where the discrepancy comes up, where you look at a lot of the research now and they're saying, well, there really isn't a, a window of timing or anything like that because they're looking specifically at exercises that don't put you into that that negative catabolic state per se and a lot of it is done on resistance exercise but if we look at the endurance athlete who goes through that aspect of being depleted needing food getting into that catabolic state the first thing that you want to do is shut that catabolic state down and the reason it's so important for women is the longer that we stay in a catabolic state the more perturbation we have towards low energy availability and menstrual cycle dysfunction not only that, but we also have a smaller window for recovery. So if we look at fasted training and the recovery window post-fasted training, for women, the recovery window is around 90 minutes. But for men, to come down to baseline, it may take up to 18 hours. So they're able to you know, have a little bit of carbohydrate, protein, delay a meal, and be fine and recover well. But for women, we need to stop that catabolic state, and the best way to do that is with protein. So then if you're taking in that protein to boost the leucine levels up in circulation and in the brain to stimulate the muscle protein synthesis as well as um, shut that catabolic state down, it also opens the window up for carbohydrate from that 90-minute window up to about two to three hours. So it's not about, you know, you need to get this X amount of carbohydrate, X amount of protein within this tight window. It's more about let's shut down that catabolic state start that reparation and then we can get to our next meal but that protein intake post-exercise for women is is more important than than what it is prefaced in the literature because again most of the studies have been done on men and so they just generalize 
That's interesting. And I, it, it also kind of brings up another topic that I find interesting. And, you know, you're, I want to say the first person I've heard actually address it the way that I've kind of begun to think about it as an endurance athlete. And that has to do with, you know, fasting protocols or intermittent fasting, which is, you know, also kind of getting, getting a lot of more popularity these days. And um, I get asked about it all the time since I do follow a high fat, low carb diet. And people always want to know, do you intermittent fast? When do you do it? How do you do it in the context of endurance sport? And, you know, my message is usually one of caution with that because I feel like, well, for two reasons, I feel like it's, it's something that can be abused if the wrong person gets a hold of it. And it's also something that I think is being looked at in the lens of a time frame, which for the general populace is probably fine. But when you're talking about endurance athletes who may be, you know, burning a large quantity of calories in a very short period of time, I think you need to start looking at that meal frequency timing thing from an energy expenditure time frame as opposed to a minute or hour time frame. Am I kind of along the right lines with that or is there something else that I'm missing? No, and the other thing that happens and you're kind of alluding to it as well when you're talking about the large amount of calories is that most of the studies on intermittent fasting and such, they aren't including exercise. And we know that exercise in itself becomes a fasted state. So if you're spending a long time burning a lot of calories and then you're like, I'm gonna delay, because it's not in that quote window of, of eating, it is counterintuitive from a sports science point of view because you're really compromising recovery and you're compromising your next couple of workouts. So yes, it is about when am I training, how am I fueling for it, and if I want to do some kind of fasting, it's you know that overnight fast, right? So you're looking at I'm going to stop eating after five o'clock or after my dinner. And I'm not going to eat again until breakfast. And then you're getting that 12 to 15 hour fast, which is pretty much a, a short window of intermittent fasting. And you're going to get the autophage effect and all the things that people want from intermittent fasting. Um, if we're talking about the low carb, high fat diet, it's, yeah, I can, I can see the aspect in using it for men and it works well. But when we're looking at for women, we have to be very specific and very careful with how we implement that. And it's usually in a base training where they're really trying to maximize aerobic capacity and increasing mitochondria, increasing all of the aspects that give them that big engine. Um, but then we have to taper it out because we also know that low carbohydrate is, is detrimental to the endocrine system. Um, it's detrimental to mood and the longer that you're on it, the less your body can access exogenous carbohydrate and women already have that issue when estrogen comes up. So you have to be very specific and usually I don't recommend it for women, but there are some women who are like, I really want to try this. I want to put it in because I've heard X, Y, Z about it. Um, so yeah, I, I agree hundred percent that it's very specific to the individual and then when you're looking at it from like a timing perspective, it's put your training and your recovery first and because you are an athlete. And then if you want to, you know, try a lifestyle diet, then you have to try to fit that in somewhere where it's not going to compromise. I've got a little just, just a question because I just, you know, I just today actually I saw an interesting study came out just July 19th out of Austria and it was looking uh, at a 12-week low-carbohydrate diet, very low-carbohydrate diet on maximal aerobic capacity, high-intensity high intermittent exercise and cardiac autonomic regula regulation is on randomized parallel group study. Thomas Dostal is the lead author. And, and basically, you know, they 
the majority of the participants in this study were women because I wanted to look at that uh, because I knew we were interviewing them. And, I, and, and the results of that particular study in this group showed that the women had better body composition. They had no loss of uh, high intensity, uh, high intensity uh, interval exercise capacity, no loss of cardiac autonomic regulation, and no loss of maximum aerobic capacity compared to people in the higher cardiac. So I just wonder if what you're talking about with women is more geared toward endurance athletes, or is it across the board? You know, I'm just kind of wondering because, you know, like I said, we're getting more and more of these studies. Some of these athletic studies have been done in three, four weeks. The Louise Burke study came out in 2017 looking at race walkers, you know, negative performance. And now we're seeing these longer studies being done. And I, I don't know that, uh, you know, we have all the information. And so I'm just kind of wondering when your perspective with, with women uh, needing more so carbohydrates. And I know women generally are carrying more body fat than men. And there's a reason for that. And it has to do with reproductive capacity. And so, and we know that carbohydrates tend to, for many people, allow us to more easily consume calories and put on weight. So I'm just wondering what your perspective is with regard to athletes and is it, or is it specific to a particular type of athletic activity or is just all women across the board, across all sports should uh, not utilize uh, lower carbohydrate strategies? So I know the study that you're talking about and it was 12 weeks, which is not necessarily long enough to see any kind of detrimental change, like 12 weeks, three months, your body is still adapting. Um, and it was recreationally active women. So, you know, it's just the general population. And again, there is a time and a place for it. So when we're looking at that high intensity, um, when we're starting to get into like the competitive scope and the longer term and the training history, this is the studies that have not been done. And we know from a physiological aspect in the athletic studies that are looking at power athletes. We're looking at team sport athletes like um, rugby sevens. We're looking at endurance athletes. When they start to drop their carbohydrate level to that 20% uh, total intake, this is where you really start to see compromises in performance um, and menstrual cycle irregularity. If we're looking at the high intensity like CrossFit, recreational CrossFit, boot camper, Again, they're not getting into a complete fasted state or a compromised state in that three months because they are not completely expending all of their energy in those short sessions, and then their normal food can recover. So even if they're getting 30% from fruit and veg, they're still going to be able to replenish the glycogen. From a performance aspect, again, it depends on what are you looking for for um, lifestyle versus performance. That's the question that hasn't been answered. And this is where we start to get into trouble with the media is they'll start pulling these studies to support low carbohydrate or support keto or support these diet trends, but they're not looking at the specific population. Again, they're generalizing. They're taking it from a clinical population. They're taking it from a recreational population and trying to apply it, apply it across the board. Where I'm starting from the top and looking all the way back to the seminal research and saying, well, for general health and performance, Across the board, we know that the bottom line is to maintain endocrine health. And when we start dropping carbohydrate and increasing fat too much, we're starting to see the longitudinal research that one, it's not good for overall health. And two, after about six to eight months, we do start to see that performance decrement in the higher end athlete. Do you have a study that, that you can reference that, that shows uh, the long-term one year out, two year out where they show detriment to uh, athletic performance is that is that something you've got you said you you've 
you said we don't have those studies, but then you say you've seen that. So where are you getting that data from? From our our studies here, and some of them are in press and some have been published, so I can push them out to you. So when we're looking, again, across the board at all these high-end labs and athletes that are coming out, again, like I said, that, that longitudinal stuff isn't out there yet. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I'll add to what you said. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just, I would, I was just going to say, I would add to like what you said, just to fill in with um, this idea where, you know, we oftentimes do the studies on a very specific set of people and then extrapolate it out. Or, I, you know, it's not the researchers that are extrapolating out, it's the readers and then the media that is extrapolating out to populations that maybe it's not as applicable to. And, you know, I run into that all the time as like my primary focus is extreme endurance, ultra endurance with like 100 mile plus races. And, you know, it, from time to time, you'll see like, you know, someone will try to compare that to, like, say, a five-kilometer race, which are worlds apart, in my opinion, in terms of how, you know, how you're going to structure the training for that and also how you're going to, um, you know, the intensity you're going to be using on race day itself. So, like, uh, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles we have with kind of the nutrition side of things when it comes to, you know, these different populations that we're talking about. Are we talking about Olympians doing Olympic distance track and field? Are we talking about middle of the pack ultra marathon runners? You know, it's, you really have to get down to the bedrock before you can, or almost to the individual level before you can really start to parcel out what will or will not work for anyone. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing that isn't talked about is the changes that happen from like the fluid balance point of view and the hormonal perturbations as you get into that duration. Um, because if you're looking at five hours, you don't have as much stress as someone who's finishing something in seven hours. And when you're looking at the 100-mile um, road foot races, then that's a completely different um, perturbation on when you're looking at fluid balance, hypoxia, gut stress, endotox, and all that kind of stuff that also needs to be countered by nutrition. Do you think that going back to the, the carbohydrate issue, do you find that protein is a confounder there? Because a lot of people on low carbohydrate, particularly ketogenic diets, tend to run low protein. And I've found, in my experience, going higher protein where my caloric intake is 30, sometimes 40% of my calories are coming from protein, that I have uh, higher amounts of glucose available to me through gluconeogenesis. We know there are certainly animal studies that would support that, particularly with regard to liver glycogen after an overnight fast. And so I wonder, you know, when we talk about where this uh, endocrine disruption or hormonal disruption is coming from, is it is it lack of circulating glucose, glucose availability, glycogen, or is it actually feeding yourself through the gut the carbohydrate itself, or can we can we have a proxy via via protein via gluconeogenesis? Do you know if there's any good evidence that that has kind of delineated the, those two situations? Um, so when I'm talking about hormone disruption and dysfunction, it's not coming down to the glucose metabolism. It's coming down to the elevation in cortisol and the inability to drop that down to a level that puts you out of a catabolic state. We do know that people who have a higher protein diet can maintain lean mass and also maintain a higher circulating glucose concentration, um, but the mechanism there isn't clear either. So again, when you're looking specifically at what population is being studied, is it a man, is it a woman, is it a power athlete, is it an endurance athlete, what's the body composition, all of those confounding variables come into play. So do I have a specific answer of what that mechanism is? I don't. Have I seen the, the research? I haven't seen anything that 
will you know sway me one way or another to say this is exactly what we need to do for this set of population this is exactly what we need to do for this other population because you start from a rat model and you work your way up to an n of six men or an n of seven women with menstrual cycle not taken into account so the scientific design of a lot of these studies that is coming out is also something that needs to be investigated and looked at um, so it is a quagmire. I had someone tell me last November when I was going to give a, a talk that she's glad she's not in the nutrition field because every day something different comes up. Amen to that. Yeah, it is, it's very confusing. Let me ask you, um, just you know, because we want to focus on women here, when we talk about menstrual cycle, obviously, you know, there's, there's follicular phase and luteal phase and the actual menstruation, all these different things that are going on and different hormones with progesterone and, and estrogen and FSH and all these surging and changing. How do we sort of tailor our nutrition, our training around those particular cycles? Can you say, you know, post you know, menstrual cycle, you should train this way, pre-menstrual cycle, you should train this way? Or how, is there any way that, that women should sort of approach it in general terms? Um, yes. So in the low hormone phase, follicular phase, this is where you can access carbohydrate. Your core temperature is lower. Um, you have a reduction in, in central nervous system fatigue stimulation because estrogen and progesterone are low. So this is where you can hit that high intensity, the power workouts, the um, top end stuff. And we also know that in a gym situation, this is where you want to go do your, your um, heavy lifting per se, and not just your hypertrophy, because we're looking at lean mass gains and pure strength gains. You're working with your physiology in this low hormone state to actually get that. And there is a lab out of Sweden, Wilkstrom, who has demonstrated this across the board and looked at the effects of an OCP versus a natural cycle and showing that OCP does not have that same effect because the exogenous hormones do not exert the same effect on bone and skeletal muscle as endogenous estrogen. Then when we get around ovulation, when we know that estrogen is anabolic, some women who feel fantastic because they're not quite as sensitive to the negative effects of estrogen can hit it hard. So this is where you're keeping track of your cycle and knowing how you feel. If you feel fantastic in and around ovulation, that's when you go and you do your, your PR type work. So you're getting that training stress above and beyond what you normally could. And then as you start to get into the early luteal phase, this is where you start to taper down into doing more hypertrophy type work, maintenance work, steady state work. Because again, your body is, is sparing carbohydrate and, and releasing more free fatty acids due to estrogen. Your core temperature is up due to progesterone. And you're also in a greater catabolic state because progesterone is catabolic. So you want to make sure that you're not overstressing and you're recovering well. And then in the late luteal phase, when estrogen and progesterone are at the highest and it's starting to drop off, this again is where you can put in some specific nutrition interventions by looking at using protein before and after to boost that leucine um, and mitigate central nervous system fatigue, staying hydrated because your plasma volume's dropped. But again, looking more at, at the endurance aspect, the, um, the hypertrophy aspect, the higher reps, the steady state. And then when you start bleeding, most women are like, oh, I can't do anything, I'm on my period. But because your hormones have dropped and you're in that early follicular phase, again, working with your physiology, you can hit it hard. Yeah, and so just for the people that don't know the lingo, the follicular state is basically once you start menstruation, it lasts 
you know, roughly like 16 days or something like that, and then you kind of transition to the luteal phase. So, you know, when we put it into two layman's terms, so when you start menstruation and for the period of the week or so, two weeks after, that's when you can sort of really ramp up the strength training, what you're saying. And then as you get later towards ovulation, later in the month, then you're maybe doing more hypertrophy-based work, which you've got this more volume-based work. My, my assumption, we're talking muscle building, I suppose. Yeah, so we typically say a menstrual cycle is 28 to 32 days. Day one is the first day of bleeding up to around day 13, which is ovulation with that estrogen surge. So that's the follicular phase, low hormone phase. Ovulation is day 13, 14, and then you start to get into the higher hormone phase or the early and late luteal phase um, up to when your period starts again, and that's day one. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fat Snacks. Fat Snacks' mission is to make foods that taste incredible and make a keto or low-carb diet more enjoyable and sustainable. Personally, I'll throw a pack of their chocolate chip cookies in my travel bag when on the road or away from my kitchen. Other options include double chocolate chip, lemony lemon, and peanut butter. Next time someone tells you a keto diet is too restrictive, blow their minds by telling them to head over to fatsnacks.com forward slash HPO. That's F-A-T-S-N-A-X dot C-O-M forward slash HPO and type in promo code HPO for 5% off their next order. Now, back to the show. Just a kind of a follow-up question to that would be like, is there good like training programs out there that are almost just designed around like the female cycle that they can kind of, I don't want to say plug and play because that simplifies it maybe a little too much, but where it kind of navigates that timeline a little more specifically than say your typical three up, one down kind of a build. Not yet. (laughs) Are you working on that? (laughs) I am, uh, which is why I'm I'm in my own green room. Um, Yeah, so we're developing online resources because I get this question all the time, right? And so it's like there's no real definitive place to go. So we're creating... Um, a series of little video snippets and resources pulling in different experts talking about how do you do do training when do you do so all the stuff that we're talking about will be little snippets of information where people can go and find oh well this is I'm interested more in this so I'm going to go to this resource so it's it's really trying to pull everything together that is evidence-based so it's one direct area where people can go and then feed out to their own interest. That's cool. I'm sure the, well, half the population will be happy to see that come out. It's, it, it is always interesting to me when you kind of see some of that stuff where, you know, we have a lot of things that were kind of designed around like the male athletes. Uh, and then even if it's a sport that is, uh, you know, popular with the females, it doesn't seem to be necessarily ever catered towards them first or even in parallel with it. So um, I'm sure a lot of people will be excited to kind of see that stuff. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. You know, another question I had that I heard you talking about too was kind of your interest in, in gut bacteria and, mm. um, and just the digestion process in general. And, and we've had a few podcasts where we talked about that a bit. And uh, one thing I had, or you had mentioned that I thought was kind of interesting and, and especially important, I think, to endurance athletes is uh, the role of kind of this, 
these exogenous fuel sources that we're using or engineered fuel sources, I should say, that is very, really common in the endurance world. And, you know, it's one thing I think to utilize those things on race day, because, you know, you do want to get that quick nutrition to a degree, but you know, a lot of times when you get behind the marketing engines of some of this stuff, it's like they want you to be taking it every day, multiple times a day. And how does that affect our gut bacteria versus kind of a more whole food approach? Or I guess, you know, I say whole food in quotes because that's kind of a nebulous term these days, but, um, you know, versus just what you typically be eating versus say like a, a sports drink or something like that. Yeah, so when we look at um, this article, it came out in Nature about two years ago. They were looking at the gut bacteria of endurance athletes using a typical training diet. So they're using the the engineered nutrition, the sports drinks, the gels, the blocks, the bars with a higher sugar content. And they found that um, at the end of their study, the gut bacteria profile in these athletes who ate quote, whole foods for the rest of the time or, quote, clean for the rest of the time because they were eating such a high sugar diet under extreme stress of the gut because you have to remember you have blood flow diversion from the gut when you start exercising. So the gut is under heat and hypoxic stress. So this creates an environment where I guess the strongest survive. So if you're putting in a lot of sugar intake in under these stress, then the bacteria that feeds on those simple sugar will overgrow and kill off the, the quote, good bacteria. So if we're thinking about the firmicutes versus the bacteriotes, and we want more bacteriotes because this is the bacteria that feeds on like your, your fibrous foods and promotes lean um, lean mass development moderates uh, your appetite and firmicutes is associated with um, obesity and blood sugar swings and some of the more negative effects. And they found that um, the endurance athletes, again, who had this higher sugar training diet had the same ratio and bacteria profile as a sedentary obese American. So when we start looking at what are we taking in during training, you need to really be cognizant that your gut is under so much stress So if you're feeding it high sugar, then the bacteria is going to respond to that. So if we're looking at having a really good gut microbiome for overall health and performance, because we know how much it ties together from a physiological and a mental angle, then you do want to look at using a variety of of real food while you're training just to mitigate some of that stress. And we also know from a physiological standpoint that taking in pure carbohydrate all the time can overload some of the transport mechanisms in the small intestines, which is why people end up with that bloating and gassy feeling towards the end of a race or midway through. So it's really being cognizant of what kind of training are you doing today? Am I doing long, slow stuff? Well, I'm gonna bring my sweet potatoes. I'm gonna bring um, you know, like my peanut butter sandwich or something like that, right? So looking at real food aspect, am I gonna do short, high in- intensity intervals? Well, maybe I don't need food per se, Maybe I just really need to focus on the hydration aspect because it's short and I can fuel before and after, but being really conscious of what kind of food you're taking in. That's interesting. I think, you know, it, it, 
it echoes well within the extreme endurance world where, you know, sometimes the hurdle someone's trying to get over is one they, they can hardly seem to solve. And that's, you know, finding yourself stopping 20 plus times in the last quarter of the race to use the bathroom or to puke up whatever, you know, engineer fuel source you're taking in. So yeah. you know, hopefully, hopefully people can, can take that to heart and, and solve some of that problem and have a, a more, more productive final end to their races. <laughs> yeah. And the other aspect in like the ultra endurance is um, people tend to think, well, I'm going to have X amount of calories every so many minutes or so many hours. And they're not really thinking about all those physiological changes that are happening in the gut, right? So we know we can't stop dehydration. We can just slow it down. And it's changing your nutrition along the way to match the increasing stress that's going. So you can start solid and work your way semi-solid. But people who are just using liquid nutrition all the time, then that's what you see. The last quarter of the race, porta potty stop or stop in the woods, walking, gut cramping on the side of the road. And it comes down to what they've been eating. That's interesting. Um, I want to go back really quick to kind of the, um, the topic that we were talking about before with kind of like uh, like the fasting or even any type of uh, you know, nutrition approach that can positively or negatively impact the female population versus the male population. And I think it's, it's more common maybe, and I could be wrong here, but I think it's more common within like the endurance running world, partly because, you know, you start getting into this real grayish area of like power weight ratio, where I find that a lot of times people, they pay very close attention to the weight side of that ratio and not so much to the power side. And they kind of okay. get hung up into this rhythm of like, well, if I see the scale going down, it means I'm going to be faster. And I think a lot of that is just kind of, you know, maybe bad messaging from prior, prior advocacies and just, you know, kind of a, a poor understanding of what actually is going on with that. Do you see like some of these hurdles for women within, uh, within, within sport having to do a lot with that too? Are they being more negatively impacted with messaging they've gotten from the media about what their body image should look like, what they should be eating versus what men are supposed to be eating? Um, yeah, so I mean, like the bulk of the women that are coming to see me have been on like, they're trying all the turning diets. So they're doing the intermittent fasting and they're doing the fasted um, morning training. And after about four or five months, they're like, I'm putting on belly fat, I'm getting slower. I'm cutting back my calories. And it's because I've gotten into such this low energy state that their body's just conserving, conserving, conserving. And we know that when you get into that low state, your resting metabolic rate goes down. And after four days of low energy availability, you start to get thyroid dysfunction, which contributes to that resetting and lowering of your resting metabolic rate. Um, when we look at low energy availability in men, the timeline for that is much, much longer. So if we look at you know three to four months of low energy availability in women, we start to see performance decline. We start to see that thyroid dysfunction and a downturn in the resting metabolic rate. It can be eight to 12 months for men until you start to see that. And we'll see it in that high-end athlete where you'll see someone who's like taken off for the season and they look really skinny and, and fit. And then all of a sudden, boom, they hit the wall and they can't come back. I see it all the time where women are like, all of a sudden this season, I can't attack. I can't get in front of the pack. I can't actually get that surge I'm, I'm falling off the back what's going on and then they start trying to change their nutrition to match but it's in the too late basket they need to really pull back but for men again it can be that year year and a half where they're 
they're not seeing a decrement until that second six months where they're like, I'm just off the mark. I don't quite feel what's going on. So when we start getting into all of those nuances of these um, diets that are coming from clinical population into the athletic world, it's where we have to be really careful um, because we know that intermittent fasting and fasted training work really well for people who are trying to lose weight and get better cardio metabolic profiles. But when we take that into that athletic endeavor, we haven't seen the research that combines what we're doing in the athletic world from a training scope with those diets. But we have seen the outfall of this low energy availability and the repercussions in both men and women. Do we know what like the biological or like evolutionary kind of uh, framework is like that would cause that that big difference in kind of how quickly that that sets in for men versus women or women versus men, I should say? Yeah, I mean, if we go back to the man as the hunter days, like way back in the hunter gatherer days. Um, and you had this area of, of low food availability when there was the time to go hunting and there's low food availability men would lean up, get stronger, get fitter, get faster to, in order to go hunt and bring the food back. The women of that time were not the ones who were going out and hunting and weren't going out to fight the beast to bring the calories back. They're the ones that were taking care of the kids and, and reproducing. So in times of low calorie intake, it's not advantageous, or I shouldn't say low calorie intake, low calorie availability, it's not advantageous to reproduce. So women's... Um, resting metabolism goes down and they start become amenorrheic so that they don't produce. They also put on extra belly fat as that conservation of low calories because when the bees came back, it was feed the men, feed the kids, and then the women. So from a biological standpoint, it was following the evolution of where the calories are available and the responses for survival. So now we see that in this athletic population where men will lean up and get fitter and faster and low calorie, low carbohydrate availability, but women will start to put on that belly fat, lose um, the impetus to increasing resting metabolic rate, get thyroid dysfunction and get this endocrine and menstrual cycle dysfunction. What are your thoughts on, uh, I know because you kind of briefly touched on, you know, OCPs or oral contraceptive pills uh, as, as an, is it a, I seem, it seems to be that you think of it as a, it's sort of a, ne a net negative as far as athletic performance in the female, or correct me if I'm wrong. And then how do things, and I don't know if you get into the menopausal type stuff, because we certainly have listeners that would fall into that category. And, and, and certainly some of them have, you know, some athletic aspirations. So how do, how do those sort of things impact, you know, what, what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, so we know that when you get put on an oral contraceptive pill, it downregulates your natural hormones. So it's pretty much suppressing your natural um, estrogen progesterone production. Uh, the sugar pill week, there's a rebound effect. Not only do you have this um, like half time of or half life effect of the exogenous hormones, you'll end up with the greater circulation during the sugar pill week, but your body rebounds after about two or three days and, and estrogen starts to come up. So there's really no low hormone effect. The biological uh, availability of the common monophasic pill, so that's three weeks of your standard estrogen, progesterone, and then one sugar pill week, is six times that of your natural estrogen, progesterone production. And we know that under high loads of estrogen, progesterone, your VO2 peak is decreased, your anaerobic capacity is decreased, um, there's greater systemic inflammation, there's a decrease in your IGF-1, um, there's a decreased synthesis for muscle protein, um, 
or decrease stimulus for muscle protein synthesis. So it's not, when you're looking from an athletic potential, it's you're putting so much of your recovery potential, your performance potential on the table when you're using an oral contraceptive pill. The other aspect is if you're using an oral contraceptive pill, it's not a real period. It's a withdrawal bleed. So you might say, oh, I get my period, but you're not. And so we don't know from an endocrine function if you're getting into low energy availability, if you're training too hard, if you're not eating properly because the pill masks that. There is a time and a place where women need to be on it for health reasons, and that's a different story. PCOS, endometriosis, bone density is more of a patch, not a pill, because of different estrogen um, compounds that are used. But the, the common perception is I'm gonna take an oral contraceptive pill and manipulate my cycle so that I don't have to worry about my period. But I want people to understand that having your period is a good thing. It means you're healthy. It's an ergogenic aid. And if you're taking in these exogenous hormones, you're putting so much of your performance potential on the table. When we get into the menopause aspect and looking at hormone replacement therapy or menopause therapy, if you have really significantly bad vasomotor symptoms, and you're going through this perimenopause where you're like, I just can't handle this, then you can use a very small amount for a short amount of time of that hormone replacement therapy, but not for bone health, not for muscle protein synthesis, because again, the hormones that are used in those um, medications are not the same as an endogenous hormone. They're only there to mitigate the symptoms that you're having. Um, so that can be a completely different conversation when we get into the menopause and master's athlete of how do we stimulate lean mass development? How do we attenuate this belly fat accumulation? Because we're more sensitive to carbohydrate. We have a, a reduction in muscle protein synthesis. So that's when you have to change up your training. You have to look at jumping and counter jump movements for bone density, multi-directional, doing high intensity, getting into the gym to keep that lean mass stimulus going. And it's not from a hormone perspective, it's looking at how do we keep those muscle satellite cells triggered? How do we keep the bone turnover and remodeling going? Um, because we don't have those endogenous hormones to help us out. I mean, Stacey, that's a great point. You know, we had uh, Professor Keith Barr on a couple weeks ago, and we talked a little bit about you know the, the bone remodeling capacity for, for, for jumping. You know, I think it's tremendous. And, you know, it's something I, you know, I'm, I'm a guy in my 50s and I'm jumping all over the place, you know, and just, and I'm not a woman, but I mean, I still realize there's tremendous benefit in that. So I think that's an important point to kind of re-highlight from our past topics. So that's a great sort of thing to realize. You know, I, I've sort of been beating the, uh, you know, drum about women doing strength training, preserving lean muscle mass is, is, is a crucial thing. I think we've undervalued that. Uh, through sort of decades that we're all going to get out and jog and get cardiovascular fit, and we've sort of totally disregarded the importance of lean muscle mass as a not only as a functional aid, but it's it's actually an it's a it's, a, it's an endocrine organ itself. I mean, there there's a huge amount of things that the muscle does that we kind of don't realize as far as you know. You know, it goes back to saying everything sort of interacts with everything, and so I think that's a you know, very good topic. What I mean is, as far as, um, you know, if you're developing, a, you know, say we've got a, you know, you've got a generic girl growing up, you know, you got a six-year-old girl that you're going to turn into some great athlete. I don't know if you get into pediatric stuff, but I mean, how do we, how do we like, let's walk this girl from age six to age 80. I mean, how do we, how do we maximize our, 
athletic performance and hopefully functional lifespan. What, what kind of things are we doing at different times in our life? If, if you care to go into that or can comment on that, I think that would be kind of an interesting discussion. So when we look at like the six-year-old girl, she should just be playing and doing as many things as possible to develop the balance, the motor skill across the board, shouldn't be specializing at all. Because at the onset of puberty, there's so many different changes where we don't address them. Like uh, uh, with the onset of the menstrual cycle, women's hips widen, their shoulder, shoulder girdles don't necessarily have the same rotation movements. So there's lots of relearning that we have to do with our girls that's not talked about. They have to relearn how to run, they have to relearn how to throw. But this is part of the precedence of girls dropping out of sport. So when we start to get into um, like the teenage athlete, it's more about the boys will lean up and get strong and fit so they can do that normal like let's get into the gym and let's start building the muscle. But for girls on the onset of puberty, it's more about technique and relearning some of those fundamental motor patterns so that as they start to get into a stable menstrual cycle and get into their sport, they can actually build and and be more successful in the sport that they want to be in. And then as they're going through um, the premenopausal state, it's again looking at where's the menstrual cycle, how is it affecting um, where you're training, how you're racing, what you're doing, until you get into that period and postmenopausal state. When you get into that period and postmenopausal state, that's when you, you reduce that low intensity type long, slow distance cardiovascular work and really start putting more into that high intensity, the jumping, the um, resistance training. And I always tell my older women, you gotta lift heavy shit. Because if you don't lift heavy shit, then you're going to lose your bone, you're going to lose your muscle, and then the quality of life is going to just go out the window. Regardless if you're trying to be a master's athlete or you're just trying to carry your own groceries up the stairs. Yeah, that's it. Go ahead, Zach. I was just going to say that's interesting, and I'm glad you brought that up because I do remember you talking about that before, and it, it resonated with me because I used to coach uh, high school uh, track and cross country when I was when I was still teaching and it was like you know one thing that I kind of thought of like after that part was uh, you know we don't really I feel like we don't really teach the the younger generation kind of how to run to begin with we just kind of assume oh well running's natural go to do it so then when you add that piece of the puzzle in there as well where like the the changes that the boys are going to experience versus the girls uh, when they when they go through puberty, uh, you know, you might have to teach teach them how to uh, the mechanics and the running stuff again. So it's like almost doubly doubly a disadvantage disadvantageous to the women as it is to the men at that point when we're kind of at that age in in high school and doing sports like cross country and track versus some of the sports that are maybe more on top of teaching kind of drills and things like that before they actually play the game. Yeah. yeah. And then taking into the cultural aspect of body image and body changing and understanding that and getting the girls to know that it's just a temporary blip in time and their body is going to settle. But if they get the good mechanics and they get the good nutrition and, and understand what's going on, then that sets the foundation for a really successful health and, and um, performance career in front of them. Awesome. Sean, do you have anything well, else? Yeah, I mean, I just want to get, uh, you know, I don't want to keep you here too long, uh, but talk about protein requirements, difference between men and women. Do you find any any need for women to eat more or less protein per kilo of body weight than men do, or do you think it's pretty much the same? And what do you think the 
you know, I would say comparing sedentary women to, you know, act, active women. Is there a difference out there in, in far, as far as what you are tar- trying to target? Yeah, the general recommendations are way too low for female athletes. And there was a couple of studies that came out demonstrating that. Um, so for female athletes, it's not the, the one gram of protein per, per um, pound of body weight. It's more like the 1.8, similar to men. Um, when we get into the peri and postmenopause, it's even more. Um, and we've just finished a couple of studies looking at post-exercise consumption, looking at the trigger points of 20, 30, and 40 grams for attenuating that eccentric downhill running. And there wasn't any kind of sign of uh, motor activity until you hit that 40 gram dose. So when we start looking at dosing and requirements, we still have a lot of research to do. But from what is starting to come out, we know that the recommendations right now are too low for female athletes. And across the age span, we really need to focus on bumping it up. Yeah, Stacey, you said one gram per pound or 1.8 grams per pound. I assume you meant kilogram is the current recommendation. I mean, yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's what yeah. I thought. I just want people who are crazy start eating 400 grams of protein a day. Uh, but yeah, and, and I kind of, I kind of generally tell people they should be getting, you know, a gram per pound, which is about that 1.8 per kilo or so, something like that. So that's kind of where I kind of fall in line. I've, I've been very protein centric. We've had guys like Jose Antonio and Don Lehman and Stu Phillips and all these guys on the show. And they're all big protein advocates. And so it's glad to see that, that you know, even, yeah. even the women are agreeing that that is an important thing to do. And in many cases, it's maybe even more important because we've, you know, the cultural and social pressures are always for the women to sort of sort of subsist on salads and, and, a, and a sliver of chicken breast and, you know, a little fat dressing. And, and I think that is a, you know, that's kind of a disaster, particularly if you're trying to get out there and do two aerobics class a day and, and just do everything you can to, to basically lose all your muscle mass. Yeah, exactly. That's the that's a 1990 Kate Moss look, right? Let's just have some lettuce and a sliver of chicken breast and call it a day. <laughs> yeah, it's good to dispel that myth, and I think it's, it's good to see that. Well, anything else you wanted to, you wanted to touch on? Is there any other major sort of male-female differences that we need to be aware of that, that, that people can take action on that, that you know, you'd recommend? Um, just being aware that there are sex differences from birth. And so when you start looking at what the recommendations and guidelines and, and meat is putting out there, just go back to the seminal research. See what the population is. Ask if it's appropriate for me in my sport, in my life, regardless if you're male or female. But for women, really focusing on, like, am I healthy? Am I having a regular menstrual cycle? Um, Why am I on an OCP? Because these are all the questions that come up. Like, they go into their GP, and they're like, well, you know, I'm tired, I'm flat, I'm, you know, I've lost my period. And they're like, oh, well, we need to put you on a pill. And it's not about the pill, it's about getting healthy. So that's the big messaging, really, for across the board for female athletes is, Think about your period as being an ergogenic aid, and if you don't have it, something's wrong. Well, thank you for you the number one. The number one fix for that is just eating more. I mean, in general, I mean, is that that the major problem for most of them? For most, yeah, for the most part, is too high of of stress and and not fueling properly, and stress not being necessarily lifestyle stress, but that exercise stress combined with lifestyle stress. Um, and getting people to understand that eating less does not mean losing weight. Eating more, for the most part, in the athletic community means losing weight. 
Yeah, that is a kind of an interesting thing. And, I, and again, it's and I think particularly when we were looking at you know higher protein foods, it seems to hold up pretty well. It's kind of interesting. You know, we've got a lot of protein overfeeding studies done by guys like Jose Antonio and others. We've got other guests, guests that will, will echo that. You know, it's kind of like our friend John Anderson. <laughs> he's eating ten times a day and staying very lean despite yeah. A lot of his, his, his protocol is if you even have the slightest twinge that you might be hungry, it's time to eat. So <laughs> <laughs> that might be an extreme, but you know, like yeah, he's a big yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think we should we should look as you know, you know, my my view is we should look at food as something that allows us to do things rather than as as a as a sort of thing we're trying to avoid. You know, I think if you. If you look at it that way and this is i'm eating so i can do all this good stuff and build all this muscle rather than uh yeah. oh my gosh i want to eat because i'll get fat that's, yeah yep and that's the media message right if you eat this you'll get fat just like yeah. what is that, that uh, book and website eat this not that yeah like, <laughs> i have like that it should just be this is fuel i'm like a car i need fuel in order to go where i want to go and do the fun things i want to do Exactly. What do you? What do you? Can you tell us a little bit about where people can find you and what you have coming up, or if you're going to be talking somewhere, or what? Where people can learn more about you know what's going on with with, uh, with you. Um, so I post something different every day on social media handles. Um, Dr. Stacy Sims on Insta and and Facebook. Um, coming over to the states uh, September to keynote the Training Peak Summit to talk about changing the conversation for women in sport. Um, and then in New Zealand, Australia, um, targeting a couple of sports medicine conferences. Um, September having the resources platform coming out. Um, and I'm working on a second book with Celine Yeager that's addressing the peri and postmenopause aspect like Roar does for the premenopause. Um, so a lot of stuff going on. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. We'll definitely put those links in the show notes for the solicitors can go click through and, and check out what you're up to and follow you on social media. Um, but I guess if there's, if there's one thing to end with, we'll just say women are not small men, right? <laughs> exactly. Women are not small men. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for coming on, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.